0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 45. This psalm seems odd to us at first. It sounds like an ode to a handsome king about to marry a noble lady And, of course, we wonder, what in the world does this have to do with us? Martin Luther provides some helpful orientation here. He says, this is a prophecy concerning the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. Now, for us hyper-literalists in the 21st century, we wonder whether or not our friend Martin Luther was a little far out here upon his allegorical limb, but in fact, Martin Luther is on incredibly solid ground here. The New Testament explicitly says that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. It is cited as such in Hebrews 1.8. In Hebrews 1.8, the apostle says, But of the Son, he says, so that's of Jesus, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Closed quote. That is a citation from Psalm 45, verses six to seven. So Martin Luther is bang on here. This is ultimately a psalm about Jesus Christ. Now, of course, that isn't to deny that it had an original context and occasion. Of course it did. In all likelihood, Psalm 45 was originally composed by David for his son Solomon's wedding. But because David was also a prophet, he ended up speaking also and ultimately about Christ and the church. These sorts of double meanings are very common in the Psalms. W.S. Plumer says helpfully here, a thing spoken of David may be literally true of him. Thus, we have the primary sense, but David was a type of Christ. And what he says primarily of himself may have a secondary fulfillment in Christ. And so we get the spiritual sense. So David may begin in a psalm to write about himself or about Solomon in this case, and then in the spirit end up writing on two levels simultaneously. He may see past his son Solomon to his greater son Jesus and begin to say things that go far beyond what is literally true of Solomon. It is sometimes said that David, and to a lesser extent Solomon, are like arrows shot at the sun. They point us in the right direction before ultimately falling back to the earth and falling short. David and Solomon are human types of Christ. Jesus endorsed that particular hermeneutic. He actually refers to himself as the greater than Solomon in Matthew 12, 42, So if you don't like this approach to the Bible, then you are fighting against the apostles and you're fighting against Jesus, and that is generally not a good thing to do. This is a psalm about Solomon and his beautiful bride, and simultaneously, this is a psalm about Jesus and his glorious church. It is both and, and intended to be read as both and by its ultimate author, who is not David, but is in fact the Holy Spirit. So that's how we're going to read it today. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and moving on to verse one. The ascription reads, to the choir master, according to lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. The according to lilies there likely refers to the tune to which this psalm was originally sung. The word Maskel means a teaching poem, and the fact that it is of the sons of Korah likely means that it was from a collection of psalms and hymns that they preserved and sang. Verse one, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. The presumed speaker here is David as he considers the wedding of his son. We presume Solomon, who was appointed to be king while David was still alive. David was a prophet, according to Jesus in Matthew 22:43, 43. So we understand him to be speaking about his beautiful son and simultaneously speaking in the spirit about the coming Christ. We'll continue hearing this psalm in that sense. Verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men, Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, the word therefore is probably not very helpful in the ESV there. It isn't that God has blessed Solomon or Jesus because they are handsome and grace-speaking. Rather, David is saying that the fact of their beauty and the fact of their gracious speech is itself evidence that God has blessed them and touched them in a very special way. Now, we know that physical beauty can be a sign of divine blessing in the Bible. In Hebrews 11:23, 23, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Close quote. The physical beauty of Moses was taken by his parents as an indication of God's calling and favor upon the child. P.E. Hughes says here, Chris Astum observes that the sight of their child's fairness drew them on to faith by which they perceived that in a way which was more than natural he was the object of God's grace. And Peter Lombard says that because of his exceptional beauty they believed that God intended to do some great thing through him. Close quote. So I share that just to show that careful readers of the Bible have long understood that exceptional beauty can be a sign of God's blessing and favor. But of course, it isn't always that way. Saul was mentioned as being particularly handsome, and yet he turned out to be a bit of a dud as a king and as a person. So it isn't always the case. But David says in the spirit that it is the case here. Solomon has been touched by God. We know that to be true. He was extraordinarily blessed as a child, and, and so this is true in the sense of Solomon, that his beauty is a further indication of the special hand of God upon his life. And then it's truer, if we can use that term, as applied to Christ. Now, the Bible never describes Jesus as being physically beautiful. We really don't know what Jesus looked like in a physical sense, but most interpreters don't understand these verses in a physical sense, as applied to Christ. Matthew Henry, for example, says here, the beauties of the Lord Jesus, as God, as mediator, far surpass those of human nature in general, and those which the most amiable and excellent of the children of men are endowed with. There is more in Christ to engage our love than there is or can be in any creature. Quote. So we should probably understand this in terms of Christ's total beauty. He is fair beyond all comparison. He is lovely in every meaningful sense of the word. Verse three, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Now, as a Bible reader, I find it hard not to hear echoes, or or maybe it would be better to say anticipations, of Revelation 19 in this paragraph. In In Revelation 19, there's a picture, again in the spirit, of Jesus riding out on the last day. John says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Close quote. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. You can almost hear David saying, Gird on your sword, Lord Jesus. Ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let the peoples fall before you. Rule over them with a rod of iron, my great and glorious son. Those two passages, separated by 685 pages in my Bible, obviously belong together. This is a psalm about the triumphs and the glories of the king. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, as I already mentioned, these verses are cited as applying to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. They obviously could not apply in any meaningful sense to Solomon. David knew Solomon was blessed, but he knew that he was not God. David here says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This psalm, like so many others, seems to anticipate a king who is like Solomon, only ultimately and infinitely more. Again, Solomon is like an arrow shot at the sun. It points us in the right direction. But ultimately, Solomon falls tragically short. That's how Solomon functions in the Bible. David sees his son and past him and in line with him, sees the ultimate realization of the promise that God made to his house. He sees an eternal king and an everlasting throne. He sees a king who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And the New Testament tells us that's Jesus. That's who David was seeing here, thanks be to God. Verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Here now we begin to talk about the bride, the queen in the gold of Ophir, Thomas Scott says here, By the queen, the collective body of believers, seems to be intended, who, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, enriched by his bounty, and adorned by the graces of his spirit, adhered to him in singleness of affection and fidelity, and are admitted to the most endeared union and communion. Closed quote. Well, if the apostle to the Hebrews is correct in applying verses six and seven to Christ, then I don't see how Scott could be wrong in applying verse nine here to the church. If the king is Christ, then the queen is the church. That's not even close to being a stretch. Verse 10, hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty since he is your Lord. Bow to him. So here, the Holy Spirit is telling us, the church, to forget our past and to cling to Christ. He must be our first love. Well, of course, Jesus said the exact same thing. He said in Luke 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Closed quote. That's the exact same principle. To be the bride of Christ— we have to let go of all our former allegiances. We have to have a love and loyalty to Jesus that far exceeds our loyalty to biological family and country of origin, to say the least. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. Here, the prophecy seems to be that the church will become more glorious even than nations, that, again, is nothing other than what Jesus said in the parable of the mustard seed when he talked about birds finding shelter in our branches. Verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of of the king, this is a picture of the church being gathered finally to her husband. In many ways, it anticipates what we read in Revelation 14one to five, which says, "Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him one hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder." The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless, Close quote. So there, John sees the whole covenant community, Old Testament and New, 12 times 12 times 1,000, the whole church gathered into the presence of her husband. And notice the imagery. He speaks of virgins and pure ones. This is the church, clothed in splendor, arrayed in holiness, and singular in devotion. This speaks of a church purified and prepared for her husband. Thanks be to God. Verse 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Most commentators believe that we should hear these words as being spoken by God through David to the future son. So this is the the king being addressed, not the queen. God is saying through David to his greater son, Jesus, David's greater son. In the place of your fathers, in the place of many of your Jewish ancestors, by the flesh, Jesus, shall be your sons, sons by faith from every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. They shall be your princes. They shall be your family. This, of course, is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 8, 11 to 12. He said, I tell you. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, quote. Jesus is saying, many, many who expect to rule with Messiah, many of the Jewish people, many of Jesus' biological, according to the flesh, okay, many of Jesus' fathers, as it were within Judaism will be, in fact, kicked out, excluded from the eternal kingdom. David says, that's okay. Forget that, my son, and focus on the many sons and daughters who will come to you gladly, eagerly, and willingly in faith. See them. See them, my son. The Lord God himself will cause your name to be known to the ends of the earth through them. They will praise you. They will worship you. They will reign beside you forever and ever. Amen. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post. Daily encouragements and conversation starters, hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word.